Hi, and welcome to Talk Matters Podcast. Today I have Colleen Arrington on my show. We're going to talk about what it's like to be a parent with a child with autism spectrum disorder. So a little uh, backstory before I fully introduce Colleen. I was attending the University of Toledo, and I saw a flyer that I'm not sure if she had posted, but uh, saying that they wanted a care provider for their son with autism spectrum disorder. and I was very interested, but unfortunately, due to school and work, I couldn't balance that out. So um, now here is Colleen Harrington. Hi, Colleen. Hi there. Hey, so uh, I was, was I pretty right? That was, that was about it. I mean. Yeah, you, um, I was actually going to speak about our program that we're running for our son in um, the, one of the dorms at mm-hmm. University of Toledo. And um, one of the girls who was volunteering with us at the time invited me to come and share about her, you know, our experience and her experience working with Gavin. Um, so we did meet then and kind of connected through that. And it didn't work out then, but mm-hmm. like, seriously, it's probably been maybe seven I think it was years 2013. later. 2013. 2012 um, 2013. Yeah, back in touch again. So yeah. kind of cool. Well, Thanks so yeah, much for having then, me on your show. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, so. I've been following Colleen, you know, we're friends on Facebook and I've been following Colleen's story and family and that. And there was that, I had messaged you about this. There was that video you had posted. It was a live video that I happened to catch and it was really inspiring. And really, like I said before, when we talked, it was really emotional um, because like I said, I've been working with kids with autism for about six years and I don't really get to see the parent side. And so watching your live videos, it's emotional because like I said, I get exhausted after eight hours a day. So uh-huh. it's a 24-7, 365 job, you know? So um, I, I had a few questions for you, but I wanted to say uh, your son's name is Gavin. Yes. Yes, I have that right this time. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <clears throat> okay, so at what age was Gavin diagnosed with autism? He was almost four years old when we got the diagnosis. We started looking into it um, right around three and a half. And there's usually an evaluation process to go through several different um, appointments and interviews with different people and looking into different things. So the actual diagnosis, he was almost four years old. Okay. And did that include like physical therapy, occupational therapy, that kind of stuff or... Yeah, the reason that we started to look into it, and I think this kind of goes on to your, maybe another question, but oh, right, right, right. yeah, yeah he, I mean, I'll just jump into that. He, um, we, it was really not meeting milestones at the around age three and looking mm-hmm. back, it was visible from even earlier on, but at the time we, he was really not connecting, um, um, verbal communication with language so he would say words he could read words actually um but he wasn't communicating in reciprocal conversation answering questions responding to his name lots of things that um started to be red flags Mm -hmm. and being our first child we didn't notice some things until i think later than i would have if it were my second son um but being a first-time mom and him having a lot of strength and being really bright um, we just thought like, okay, he's different. He's, he's learning things differently. And, um, you know, but it got to a point where we really started to realize 
there was something going on and there was too many different areas where his development wasn't progressing or on track. And so we went to the doctor's appointment and he referred us then to um, uh, hearing and speech um, test, hearing language test, um, uh, speech therapy evaluation and a occupational therapy evaluation. Okay. From those, they then referred us to a developmental pediatrician and that developmental pedi pediatrician and psychologist that was employed there did more in-depth testing and actually make the diagnosis. So he was already involved in speech and language therapy and occupational therapy throughout that evaluation process because it takes a while. And so those, all of those things that you just mentioned, so how to jump again, was uh, reasons why you decided to get Gavin tested. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely delays in those areas. So that's what that's what started. It was really the language and communication piece. There were other things going on, but we just sort of didn't put it all together that mm. it was possibly a bigger diagnosis. Yeah, where, did, where, did you, where did you end up going to uh, get this diagnosis? Where did they refer so you? We live in Toledo, Ohio. So we went to um, a developmental pediatrician that was involved with Toledo Children's Hospital at the time, as well as Harbor Behavioral Healthcare. So it was called Children's Safe Harbor. I'm not sure if that agency actually exists anymore or if it's sort of morphed into something else now. But um, there's a lot more autism services in Toledo now than there were at that time. Um, Gavin's now 14 and he was, like I said, almost four. So things have changed a lot during yeah. that time. Um, but, so that's where we went for that evaluation. An actual psychologist did some of the testing there and the, the more in-depth evaluation. And then we went to a separate um, agency for occupational therapy and speech and language that was together in one agency um, as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's, I want to bring that up. So you said that um, Toledo now has a lot of autism resources, which I thought is, I don't want to use the word funny, but that's where I got my start was in Toledo where yeah. I started mm -hmm. working with children with autism spectrum disorder and sensory processing disorder. It was, it was at the ROTC uh, building on campus. is a oh, thing called yes. Perceptual Motor Development. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I had uh, friends that had kids there. Yeah, yeah, I did some volunteering there, and uh, I really loved it. And that's what you know, got me into this field. That's so cool. <laughs> so how did you initially react when you first heard the diagnosis? Did you know anything about autism prior to the diagnosis? Because well, I, I'm sorry, but I, you know, now I'm having my friends here having kids now and they're terrified and I just want to kind of help put their minds at ease. Yeah, well, hopefully I can do that throughout, okay. throughout <laughs> yeah. a lot of the questions. But really, right. it, it's really my intention to help parents and I've come uh, through a lot of learning in our, in our journey and it, it really is my goal and my intention to help others now. Um, at the time, I really didn't know a ton about autism. However, I was also a social worker. So in my social worker hat, I did know a bit about <laughs> developmental delays, child development, uh, of course, mental health issues. I knew a lot about those kind of things, but autism really wasn't as common then. We're also talking about, you know, 15 or so years ago now. Um, and before then, when I was learning and then working in the field. Um, but I did work with children on the spectrum, which is really interesting. So I used to work in in Chicago after going to school there and work at a all varieties of special needs school. 
some children were on the spectrum there, all different levels of the spectrum. And, um, but I never, of course, had a, an idea about, well, this could someday be my child. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't really enter my thinking very much. Um, even when there were things that I noticed about my child's development that were different or that were off. Um, so when we first found out, I was an absolute mess. I don't sometimes seem that way now because I can smile and laugh and, and look at the funny side of things and talk about that kind of thing. But in the beginning, I was completely different. Mm-hmm. And hearing that diagnosis for your child and thinking of what does that mean for our future, right. uh, it can be very, very challenging. And, and so I do um, encourage parents to know that they're not alone in whatever feelings they have. I, I, I had a whole range of feelings um, throughout that evaluation process. But as I started to dig in more, my social work and professional hat um, went in, you know, went into overdrive and I was like, oh my gosh, it's making sense. Like all the pieces were like coming together with what was going on for my child and that there was a reason for it. Mm-hmm. But also the mom guilt really also kicked in because okay. I was supposed to be a professional and I was supposed to know these things. And as a mom, I was missing tons of things. And so I dealt with a lot of guilt and a lot of um, struggle in that beginning time that of feeling responsible for feel, mm-hmm. feeling like I should have noticed sooner. Um, it was a really tough time in the very beginning. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. You know, it was a guilt because you, you think you could have caught it earlier? It was. I definitely think that we could have noticed signs earlier. And now when I go back and look at videos, look at photos, think back on what was going on during his around age two, um, there's a lot of signs that that it that his autism autism had started. Mm-hmm. The challenges had started. I don't know that his um, and I don't know if you want to go into this at all, but I don't know that his challenges were there at the time of his birth um, because he had a lot of pretty typical on track development in his very early months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there were definitely signs by age two that there were some things going on. Okay. Now, um, I don't know if you've heard these stories about um, children with autism who don't speak until they're like five years old, or, or stories about where they'll they'll speak, but it's not like full sense, and then they'll just completely shut out. I, I, I heard the story about this uh, child who <clears throat> he spoke until I think about the age five, and then stopped. And then right. one day he was watching a Disney movie, and he started up again, and his parents were just floored. They, had, they, they didn't understand why all of a sudden he's talking in full sentences. I forget wow. what Disney movie it was, but... Um, <laughs> That's not surprising. No, not at all. It would be not a Disney movie, Disney or that war one that he watched many times. <laughs> Nickelodeon. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind and is that autism is a spectrum disorder or a spectrum diagnosis, meaning that there is differences in all of our children in so many areas and so many different um, levels of challenge that they look very, very different from each other, even though they may have the same diagnosis. So, I mean, their language development can be very, very different from one to the next to the next. So there is a saying, if you've seen seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. And that just means that they're going to all be different. So don't make assumptions 
don't make um, claims. I don't like to make claims that because they have autism, they do this because it's not generally. It's not all over the board. It, it's ever, it, yeah, they're, they're so different from each other. So we have to look at them as individuals and, um, and figure out what will help them as individuals. Now, looking back, because I, I know you mentioned some of the things that kind of caught you to think like, oh, maybe we should get him tested. Now, did you also have issues with making eye contact with Gavin? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, eye contact was a big issue. And um, I think it's one that we sort of ignored or just didn't put a lot of, um, we just didn't realize. I mean, and that was a very hard thing. I can, I can, you know, I can say it now and it's not, I, it feels bad now. It feels bad even to say it that we didn't realize how off things were. And um, his eye contact was very, very minimal. And however, it was better when he was a baby. So it was better when he was younger for the first year of his life, maybe. And then it was less. And it, I think it became less and less until we started to do things differently until we were aware of his diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. And I could probably do the math in my head right now, but Gavin was born what year? I'm sorry. Uh, 2004. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's still being brought to the fore foreground. Uh, autism in general, I wouldn't say like, was sweeping the nation, but you know, people were just still kind of learning about that. Oh yeah, it was so much, so much more rare. Then it was starting to be more common, starting to be more known, services were starting to develop, but I mean, sort of the statistics or the numbers then, it was one in 150, kind of in the beginning of our time, I remember a t-shirt that we had, one in 150. Mm -hmm. And um, that has gotten, to be less and less and less of, you know, it's, it's one in 68 now is the most recent number. And I think that that's even like kind of the statistical number, but in general, people would say it's even less than that. So especially yeah. for boys. Yeah. Because, um, you know, boys, statistically boys are more likely to have girls. Um, what does that, I don't know how to word this. Uh, I guess that hopefully should fear too many people. I mean, that's a big, Statistic one in sixty-eight, and that that, yeah, jumped, even that that jumped from one in something uh, I can't remember the number from the twenty fourteen to twenty sixteen. It dropped it it uh, increased heavily. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we could do a whole probably <laughs> other discussion about uh, the reasons for that. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people have different opinions on um, yeah on that and. Uh, I think maybe we could try to do that some other time. Uh, sure. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's it's an interesting topic, though. It really is. Yeah. For what yeah. People, people believe is the reason. Um, so what therapies did you use or still use to help Kevin? And uh, what worked and what didn't? Oh, gosh. Um, okay. So we <laughs> started, like up? I said, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is a, a lot that we've done. Um <laughs> But like I said, very early on, he was before he was even diagnosed, we had already started with services because um, occupational therapy, so fine motor and gross motor delays were diagnosed right away. And speech and language disabilities were diagnosed right away, mild to moderate delays in both of those. Um, in actually, I mean, mild to moderate was the technical diagnosis. There were some significant delays going on, though, like they, they categorized things kind of um, 
you know, like that. But there was there definitely some significant things going on and things that we needed to address right away. So he was involved in those two therapies right off the bat. And um, those would, uh, occupational therapy, absolutely so helpful. Gavin had a lot of sensory issues, a lot of fine motor issues with, um, at the time, it was things that he would work on, like cutting and coloring and starting to write, those kinds of things. Um, also just fine motor grasping things, buttoning, any kind of small motor um, movements with his hands. Um, gross motor things, he still does not ride a bike. So he worked on and learned to ride a two-wheel on training wheels bike. But then at the time of moving from taking training wheels off, uh, he d wasn't very interested in it. And it hasn't been something that we felt the need to push at the time. Okay. Um, so interested? he's not interested. <laughs> <No>. oh, <okay. laughs> so that's the thing. Like if you were interested and really wanted to, we would absolutely find a way. And I know there are local um, actually camps in the summer even to work on um, bike riding. I think you probably would be able to pick it up pretty quickly now with some of that extra support. Um, it just hasn't been something that he's been that interested in doing. So it's, not, it's something we haven't focused on. And that's something I'll maybe talk about or, or mention a little bit too as we go along is that um, we decided and learned to not push in certain areas just because that's what kids do at certain ages. Mm -hmm. We really started to make decisions about what really was important for him and for us and for his overall growth and connection and engagement with people because that's the area that in his life is going to affect him the most. Right. If he doesn't ever learn how to ride a bike, it's okay. So be, so be you can survive life without learning how to ride a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so that's just an aside with that, but it really does come into play in how we made decisions about what therapies to do, what interventions to do, what to do at home, mm -hmm. what to not do, and, and what to you know eventually stop doing. So um, the speech, the OT, um, and then he started in a special school, which was, um, had a lot of different components. So it was brand new in Toledo at the time, and he was in the first class at this school. So it was um, those two things as well, occupational therapy and speech and language services. Also, um, ABA, Applied that's, Behavioral Analysis. That's going to be my next question. Um, yeah. yeah, so a behavior-based therapy and then a um, play project component as well, which is a very play-based therapy. Those are all very different things, but this oh, yeah. school did a very good job at combining um, those different modalities and um, meeting the needs of the kids, I think, with what worked best for them. In my opinion, for Gavin, we, we started to not do as much behavior-based things um, because they just didn't feel right. It doesn't mean I don't believe in them. I, it doesn't mean that um, we haven't used them or that they haven't been helpful in some ways and that many, many people find behavior-based or ABA services helpful for their kids. They do. For us, we looked more into other play-based, relationship-based, and um, other, other interventions or modalities that made sense to us and that we could apply at home. And um, that's where the Sunrise program came in for us. So that's what I spoke about when we first met mm -hmm. um, Matthew at UT. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's really what became our lifestyle. It became a way of living for us. Um, it wasn't just what we did to help Gavin with autism. So the Sunrise program is uh, a program that 
I recommend all parents um, who have children on the spectrum look into at least for um, the perspective of it, even if parents don't choose to um, run a program or do it to the level that we did. There's so much that can be learned from it and so much that helped us to go through the autism journey in such a different way, um, even aside from what we did with Gavin. Yeah, so, and, um, I don't have it typed out, um, but I, I do want to touch a little bit on ABA, um, if that's okay. So sure. now, did you not use ABA so much because did he have a lot of behavioral issues or did he have, because um, um, that's a, and I, and I heard you said that uh, it worked for you guys, and I, and I know it works for other parents, but there have been other testimonies where it's, it has not gone the best for yeah, children. I am, <laughs> um, it doesn't feel the best for me, I guess. And that's what I, I guess I want parents to think about and hear as they think about the therapies that they're doing. Um, ABA was very much in my mind a way that we would um, have someone else work with our child. They do they do ABA services in the home, but it takes a lot to train parents, I think, how to do it really right and a lot for parents to do it as their home routine. So to apply it in the home. Um, for me, that is not what we wanted to do. We didn't want to set up a very um, rigid sort of behavior-based program. And, and, and that's because I didn't think that Gavin needed to be drilled in skills and learn sort of rote memorization of things or things like that. So I don't want to um, oversimplify ABA no, and I don't, and no disrespect to people that do believe in it. I, I personally just feel so much better about a different modality, which is much more relationship focused and um, connection focused with the child. I don't think that autism is a behavioral disorder. I think it's a social relational disorder. And so that's why the Sunrise Program or play-based, interaction-based, um, engagement-based services or inter in ways of interacting with our kids, to me, makes more sense. Because helping them to have a connection and an engagement with people is much more um, useful for their life overall and much more effective, I think, to teach them anything then focusing on do this, do this, get a reward. Um, don't do that. You must sit. You must do that. For me, did not feel right for Gavin. It didn't feel like a way to foster a growing, flexible, um, engaged relationship with him. So for me, I'm personally more apt to use other types of intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's perfect. I, I lived in Massachusetts for a few weeks and I had a little bit of a health scare and I came back, but I was living with a family, a family friend whose son is uh, has autism. And I think he was diagnosed, he's probably 15 or 16. I think he was diagnosed at, uh, I hope she's not listening, but I think it's like 13, 12 or 13. So it was kind of late in the game. Uh, okay. Very high functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and after school, he would go to a play-based therapy place it was like a jungle gym it was amazing i went mm -hmm. in there one day to watch and um they would set up different social situations and they'd run through it and stop everyone and ask them okay what can we do during this situation what's a mm -hmm. situation and i thought that was a really good approach uh-huh yeah yeah i mean there's so many things that can be done and um 
different things work for different people and different mm-hmm. families, you know, and for us, sunrise just made such a different, it just made so much sense and felt better in my heart and in my head and, and, and for what we could do, what we would felt really empowered to do to help our son at home. It's helped him tremendously and it's helped us in life. That's great. Aside from autism, it's helped me in my life so much. So um, it's a huge piece of, of what we did and, and our life ongoing, even though we don't run a specific playroom and sunrise hours and things with volunteers like we did at the time that you and I first met. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the biggest challenges you face as a parent with a child with autism spectrum disorder? That's a big one. Um, I mean, in the, yeah. in the beginning, it's so much different. In the beginning, you're so overwhelmed with just understanding what's going on, how how it affects the child, um, wanting to know what to do to help your child. And that's the part that is really hard, I think, because um, – there's two different things that I want is about how you feel in the beginning and then also about what to do. And I think um, professionals aren't always giving very much hope in the very beginning. And when your child is diagnosed with something like this, it is really scary. And if somebody is not saying to you, there is hope, there are so many things that can be done to help your child. There's so many ways of helping yourself to help your child. It's just like, okay, well, here call this agency or call this and get an appointment with this doctor and or this therapist and do these things. And while I know this is something that professionals deal with all the time and they're not emotionally attached to it, that parent is. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I felt like, well, what about us? What about what can we do to help ourselves? And that was not something that was available at that time. And that's something that I'll mention later, kind of what I've done in, in the meantime to address that issue. But um, in the beginning, I think it just support for parents is so, so needed. And I felt scared. I felt fearful about their future, his future. I mean, I think that parents so much are just like, I have no idea what this is going to look like. The funny thing is, I have no idea what the future is going to look like for my other child either. <laughs> really. Right, right. And so I, I did come to a different understanding and a different way of thinking about things, but that took some time. In the beginning, there's a lot of just fear um, that, that you can really get wrapped up in um, unless you have somebody introducing to you a way to think differently, a way to take care of yourself too. Um, the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges too also was guilt in the beginning. That part for me with being a social worker and thinking I should have known professionally I should have known and as a mom how did I miss this as well um I did you know so I just had to work through that Uh, now with how far Gavin has come um still some of the challenges that we do face are having to do with social situations and wanting to help him to still work on being successful socially with other kids um and, and wondering what that's going to look like for him in the future, you know, going to high school, going to college, going to into adulthood and right. hopefully, you know, independent living. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many challenges that other parents face and I don't want to try to speak for other parents. But um, so from my from my perspective, those are the kind of things and, and some of the things that we still um, are working through as we um, also have come so far with 
with him on this journey. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my voice. <laughs> no, you're um, fine. So, what support systems uh, did you seek out to learn more about autism? How much how much research was on your own? A lot. <laughs> a lot, lot of research was on your own. Was on my own. Oh okay. yeah. Um, I think that uh, you know, there's kind of joke between um, autism moms that you could get like a PhD in in learning about <laughs> autism once your child's diagnosed. Because for me and for so many others that I know you go into like hyper research mode when mm -hmm. you find out. And that started for me as soon as we started evaluating, I started to put like, being a social worker, I put it together quickly and started to do research, a tremendous amount of research. Um, I remember going to the library. This was before the internet was used like a ton. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Just open up Google, right? right, right. But at the time I did actually go to a library and look in an aisle of books. <laughs> <laughs> and um, different autism books, looking for, for books to, you know, understand this, understand the parent piece, understand what you could do for a child, all the different therapies, and what kind of what it all meant, too. Um, so a lot of that research was um, on my own, totally just spent my, any extra free time doing it. Right. Um, a lot of crying, a lot of crying. I always say that a lot of crying, a lot of researching, a lot of more crying, a lot more researching. <laughs> Um, and I, and I finally did get to a point where I wasn't crying and dealing with sort of the emotional feeling of it all. I was, you know, moving into the, okay, so we're going to take action and we're going to make a plan and we're going to start helping our son here. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, really I was doing that from the very beginning, but, um, the support systems connecting with other parents who understood that was a huge piece. For me and um that wasn't even on Facebook. i mean facebook wasn't around I so know, if, now i'm if i may you've got a pretty good following you know i'll see some of your posts you've got a pretty good system of you know autism parents oh thank you they yeah i mean like and that's been through other autism groups there's so many available on facebook now and that you can then you can get into um in the beginning, it was really connecting with the other moms that were involved in my son's sort of therapy school. And there was a group of us that all started with a brand new school and we really connected with each other. And that piece was um, so integral, I think, in helping us to get through that time and, and have that support from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and connecting with another of my now, one of my very best friends has two um, twins on the spectrum. and. Um, that we just connected immediately like we became, we've become such good friends and she helped me through that really tough beginning time um as well yeah the research um it, interestingly i i did so much research and we also had food allergies and there's a lot of kids on the spectrum that also have allergies i haven't mentioned that yet i, I kind of was going to mention that earlier and then i we got talking about other stuff with the interventions but Doing some nutrition and some dietary interventions, that also is a big piece for some people. Some people don't feel like that's going to affect their kid or they don't choose to, to look into that. But for us, he was already diagnosed with food allergies before any autism diagnosis. So that was a big piece. And we looked into that even more and had to address some of those things as well. And it did make a difference for him, eating things different, um, not eating certain things, starting to take some supplements with things, um, and really keeping... Uh, vigilant about his food allergies helped a tremendous amount for him. 
So um, connecting on some of that as well, you know, some research on that and also connecting with other moms who were also dealing with allergy issues um, or other body, you know, physiological issues going on as long that, as well as the autism. Yeah. And I think that one gets overlooked a lot. Mm -hmm. Food allergies, the gut bacteria during pregnancy stuff. Uh -huh. A lot of that gets overlooked. And I, I've worked with students in the past who had a lot of food allergies, gluten-free, dairy-free, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. And <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's interesting. This, I don't know how to say it, but autism is so much than just autism. And there's a lot of things <laughs> that come, a lot of, that sounds so like <laughs> trite or whatever, but it's just, there's so much that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. Research. Yeah. It, it it is, and it's it's not just um just a brain issue or just a behavior issue or just a, like that's what I said earlier. It's so much more than that, and there are so many other sort of um, things interweaved into it. And um, some parents choose to look into those things a little bit more than others. Um, for some kids, that they there are you know maybe food allergy issues or or other um, gut issues or whatever. But for a lot, there are, and it's. For me, it's good when parents are willing to open their eyes to looking into those things. Um, it's good when some doctors are willing to look into those things because they're not yeah. always willing to say, yes, they could be related or yes, there could be some causation from certain things, you know, I mean, so. That would be nice someday. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so can, it's good when parents, um, yeah, it's good when parents don't just stop from the first doctor saying like, no, there's no relationship to your child being allergic to this, that, 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 and having other immune issues and their autism because there likely is some type of relation and, and interrelation with that. And when the food stuff can be addressed, some of the other challenges that fit within the diagnosis of autism are also improved mm -hmm. and addressed. So, yeah. Yeah. Um Oh, I had something. I was going to move on to the next question. I think it'll pop back up in my head. Um, so what is your biggest fear for Gavin growing up living in a world that still doesn't fully understand autism? Now, before you answer that, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was having a conversation with a few of my buddies and his youngest brother. We were talking about autism. This is a few years ago. And he said, I don't understand why we need autism awareness. I just kind of stopped and I looked at him and I said, okay, then explain autism to me. And he goes, I don't know. It's like well, okay, <laughs> should, that's why we have awareness. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who aren't touched by it. Um, I wasn't personally touched by it before. Um, I mean, yes, I did work in the school, but that's different. And, and it was really interesting to to come to a new experience of autism as a mom because it's completely different than it was as a professional. Um, I sat in IEP meetings, I sat in school meetings, I sat in planning meetings, I, you know, was involved in that stuff. I did therapy with kids who had spectrum diagnoses. It was completely different when you face it as a mom. So um, for professionals that think that they really, truly understand autism because they've worked on it mm -hmm. with it for 20 years, it's just not the same. Okay. <laughs> and um, the parent perspective is a very, very different one. Yeah. But um, the awareness piece, I think 
people are starting to be touched by it more because we are sharing more awareness. So a lot of kids in my children, they both go to a private Catholic school. It's not a special school for autism. However, they have a good amount of kids there who have a spectrum diagnosis. And as my son was getting older and as my younger son was getting older, his friends started being more aware. And Sam, my younger son, started being more aware of what was going on with his older brother and 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 the diagnosis and and what that meant and and everything and so they did start to talk about it more and i sent in a book that the teacher could use to help sam and his uh, classmates talk about it more and become more aware of what the different sensory issues or what a child might say or not say or do or you know not be able to do in the classroom and i just think that it doesn't even bother me. Some people get very, very upset about it. And I think for me, it's just, they don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they don't know. And so why, why, why would they care? Yeah. I've heard heard plenty of parents when, what did I do wrong? What did I do? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's not my personal opinion. It's not a hundred percent you. There's things that are going on in the environment. I know there's, we can get into the topic. We can get into more of that if we want, but, um yeah there's a lot of parents are just completely feeling guilty yeah i mean the guilt piece definitely and, and there's not anything that you did wrong i mean they, the causes we we aren't even really sure some people are very very sure what they think but mm-hmm. as far as parents thinking you know oh I, what did i do wrong that that definitely should be um clarified you know hopefully for them that they didn't do anything wrong and right now that they know about the diagnosis and are doing everything that they can for their child they're doing everything right mm-hmm. that's what they they they're doing what they need to do and you know there is no specific right answer but as for people like your friend that you were talking about and saying well why do we need awareness or whatever i mean that's what i'm saying like that doesn't even upset me or, or I don't feel upset about that because people just don't know that there's, there's even a reason that they should know if they know that there's one in 68 kids and people, and they're going to grow into older people and, and adults. Um, I do believe in recovery, so I should throw that in there. So they may not be an adult that has a spectrum diagnosis anymore, but those, you know, not everybody is going to have that. Some people will always have a diagnosis, and they will be adults, they will be people in our society. So we do need to know and we do need to understand. Um, so that's that's what the awareness is all about and, and how we treat people. Obviously that is a huge piece that mm-hmm. parents um, want more than awareness, they want acceptance, they want support, they want inclusion of their children in things. And there's so much that they want more than just awareness really. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I know actually, you're about fear of the biggest fear, though. So I'm sorry. You had asked about said about the biggest fear, so we we kind of got sidetracked with that. Oh, but okay. I didn't know if you wanted me to answer that. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. So the biggest fear, um, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, with with fear and coming to such a different understanding about, about autism and um, how I wanted to address it in our life. We really learned that um, having fear 
was often about focusing on things in the future. What, what if this happens? What if that happens? Um, that kind of thing. And when I really started to learn more about how I could help my son, I realized if I was sitting in fear and worry and focusing on the future, when at the time he was five years old, mm -hmm. I was not then being the most effective that I could be at that time when he was five years old in the present moment you know or even now as he's 14 if i'm focused on well what about happens when he graduates from high school and what's he going to do then i'm not doing my best to focus on what i can do to support him now in the present moment mm -hmm. and so at the beginning of our sort of most of our autism journey i started to focus on mm -hmm. the present moment not that I didn't ever think of the, the future or have fears about the future or, or have things that I wondered about, but I, I stopped myself from that and started to say, let's focus on right now and right. being present in this moment right now. And when you're present in the moment and focusing on the right now, you often don't have time for fear or you don't have the focus on fear because I'm just focusing on enjoying my child right now. Okay and creating that relationship with him and teaching him more of what I want him to know and connecting with him so that he wants to learn more of whatever it is we want to teach him about. Um, so, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, so we really got comfortable with being in the present moment and focusing on that. So fear was sort of, put to the, to the side. It, it was set aside. It was something that I started to think about really differently. Um, if I am to think about fear or concerns or areas that I want to still create change in, it's the um, ability for Gavin to be as engaged and um, part of his social environment and his um, independent living. And that's the piece that I so much want for him. Um, and that I feel like we have to do the most work at this time. Okay. So, so it's, go ahead. Okay. So, um, I remember one of my questions, but, um, <clears throat> what was that conversation like sitting down with Sam to kind of just let him know what Gavin is going through? <clears throat> um, Gav, I'm on a call. I can't take the call right now. Dad, Please tell Dad I can't talk right now. She can't talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to say hi? You can come and say hi. Come say hi, Gavin. Hi, Gavin. <laughs> say hi. His name's Matt. Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you, man. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Um. So. She'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so sorry, Matt. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, so conversation with Sam. Yes. Yes. So as Gavin got older and we knew that it would become more an issue that would be addressed in school and that others would be more aware of and his peers would be more aware of, we wanted to have that conversation. So one with Gavin, because early on, we didn't have a conversation with him saying anything about autism or anything. We just lived life like we needed to with addressing the issues as they were, uh, addressing any challenges as they were, working with him at home, you know, 
how we did. And that's just how life was. So for Sam, that's just what we did. They saw people coming over to play with Gavin. They saw them working in a special room with him. That was just what we did. But as he got older and it was going to be, a, you know, more of an awareness at school and everything, we had a conversation with Gavin about it. And then talking with Sam about it too, we started to explain your brother learns things differently. Your brother um, has challenges with some things that you don't. And then your brother's also really amazing at some things that you maybe have to work harder on. And so we would really try to point out, and this is kind of the same thing that we did with Gavin as well, is point out some of those areas of strength for him, like his memory or his ability to remember certain facts and dates and knowledge that he has is amazing. Mm, that always blows yeah, absolutely. So we pointed out some of those strengths and some of those really cool parts of his autism. And then we also said, but maybe you struggle to know what to say when people ask you a question or um, in, a, in a conversation with friends or with your classmates. So we, you know, with Gavin explained some of that as well. And then also kind of the same thing with Sam. We started to say, you know, you're able to go and do these things and, and be involved in these things. Some of that stuff is too much sensory experience, too much noise, too much whatever for Gavin to deal with. Um, so he doesn't do those things right now, you know, and, and, and you had that conversation with him. Um, and with Sam, I mean, he, he got it with, with what he could understand at that age. And then as he got older, we talked about it a bit more and he gets it a little bit more. Um, so he's, I think, trying to understand it the best that he can, right. um, having a brother who is a bit different from him and mm -hmm. is a bit different from other kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, for my next question, how did you feel uh, going into your first IEP meeting? How does, how does it compare to now? Yeah, um, that was really early on. So that was right at the time that he was diagnosed. I think we actually didn't even have the official diagnosis at the time of the IEP meeting, but I knew that it was coming. So I previously had been the school social worker and had been involved in IEP meetings. So I kind of had that background. Um, but I still, even with that being the mom, like I said before, was very, very different. So yeah. I felt very intimidated. <laughs> um, I felt, yeah, I mean, you, you come in and you're meeting with all these professionals, they're evaluating your child for several mm -hmm. hours, and then they're sitting down and sort of telling you like it is. Well, not exactly. Right. My uh, view. Yeah, I know what you mean. But, you know, been, but been, I mean, in a way, that is what happens. Yeah, I, have, I, I have sat through some IEP meetings, so yeah, I've you have to experience some of that. Obviously not as a parent, but uh, yeah, internships. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you mm -hmm. know, you do, um, I knew that I needed to be prepared. So I needed to know what our rights were. I needed to know that I could ask questions. I could say, no, I don't agree with that. No, that's not my experience. Um, I knew that I needed to speak up from the very beginning um, and not just take it like, oh, they're the ones that are going to tell me how it is with right. my child. Because this is yeah. your son. Yes. I know my son better than right. all of them. Right. And I encourage parents to remember that always, that they are their child's best expert. All of these people may be the experts on their particular area, but the parent is their child's best right. expert. And they are a huge member of that IEP team. So I knew from the beginning that I needed to be that, even as I was learning the process, even as I was learning 
you know, the different services that were available or what schools were possible for my child if we did, you know, services through our local district or what were the options if we didn't want to do, you know, services through our local district. I knew I needed to know those things and become very informed about that um, as a parent and an advocate. Did you, were you usually there by yourself or did you bring other people with you? Because I, I've been in IEP meetings where they'll bring social workers and case managers. And it's kind yeah, of like that team would, against team, <laughs> so to say. Yeah, we, um, my husband and I did a lot together in the very awesome. beginning. So he was involved with that as well. He's also an attorney, so he looks great coming in. All right, place. there you go. <laughs> um, but, tr- <laughs> but truly, I do recommend to people always to, um, if it's just them that's going, take a take a family member, take yep. a friend, take an, somebody who can be another set of ears and a, a support person for you because it can also be a very emotional experience too. The IEP process, the special education process, evaluation process at least, is very much focused on struggles and weaknesses. Right. And it can be really hard to sit there and listen to all of those um, deficit areas struggle areas and um it, it really helps to have somebody else there with you for that moral support um as also another set of ears maybe somebody taking notes um and to uh yeah i'm kind of jumping into the advice <laughs> question that's, a, no, that's definitely that's definitely okay so the next question was like what advice would you give to parents uh, yeah going into iep meetings and you just kind of touched on that but if you, if you if you have anything more you can say you can add to that that's fine yeah I mean, absolutely. Like you mentioned, having somebody there with you is so, so key. So I definitely absolutely recommend that. Um, and then if, if you are at the point, you can always call another meeting. And that's what I think parents need to know, too. It's not just oh, the one meeting a year that's scheduled. Um, if there are disagreements or if there are other things that are coming up, they can call another meeting with the team. Mm-hmm. And bring somebody else then who is caught up on the situation and who is able to help them advocate for the services that they're that they feel their child needs. Right. Um, so that's so- uh, sorry, I, I had um going growing up, still have it, it doesn't go away, uh, ADHD. So I, uh-huh. I did sit in some IEP meetings at five oh four when I was in high school. So at first it's you kind of like, what did I do wrong? Like, why did why do I have to sit in these things? And uh, why are they telling me I'm going to be doing this? Why am I going to an LD class? Why am I not in the classroom with all my friends anymore? And uh, that was that was a tough pill to swallow at first. But I mean, not to say I was in an LD class for the whole day. I was just that was like the one section throughout high school that I would go and sit in there and get special like one-on-one tutoring and stuff like that. So. I've definitely yeah. had some experience with sitting in IEP meetings as a person with ADHD, and I got to sit through them as someone who's a teacher advocate. So, yeah, yeah, and I bet that's a different experience as well, too, being the person. When I was a social worker, I often was a huge advocate for having the teenager, older students, sit in with, be a part of their meetings too. And I think a lot of people thought that was a very strange thing and, and it was very kind of unusual, but I don't know. I must have sounded like I knew what I was talking about because they, they agreed. <laughs> they, yeah, they let it happen and they said, okay, you know, and they had the student, we would have the student there too. I think it lends itself to a different level of respect in how you talk about the student as well too. They're sitting right there. Yeah, so they're, yeah. I would hope you're going to use the most respectful language that you can 
mm-hmm. um, to even share about some of the difficult topics that do involve struggles or challenges. Right. And my parents were very proactive about making sure I was in those meetings because mm-hmm. it was about me. Now, not to say like they wouldn't bring me to the ones in middle school because I, why would I sit in there? <laughs> I got ADHD. I'd be flying off the wall. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, like you said, once you get older, so I was probably about probably freshman or sophomore year of high school. So, about 15, mm-hmm. like that. so I was sitting in some of those meetings. That was tough to, like I said before, a hard pill to swallow. But, uh, they yeah. definitely, they all definitely had my best interests. So I appreciate good. that. Good, good. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, I mean, you know, when you do have a younger child, that's another piece too. I remember hearing from early on uh, when we got involved in this, <laughs> and I think I did do it at some of them, is sharing about your child sometimes even bringing a photo of your child to the meeting because sometimes the people that are in the meetings haven't even met your child. Oh, we and, can and go they, on they, for days about that. Those are, yeah. those are, those are sometimes so, worse because they're just being judged off of data. Yeah. Then, and, and okay. They're the professional that understands that data, but they don't know your child. Yeah, so the most effective I, way is to actually sit with the child and work with the child. Yeah. And also look at the yeah. data. Like, yeah, data is important, but strictly going off data, I think is a misrepresentation. Yes, absolutely. They need to know the child and, and remember that this is a child we're talking about. This isn't just somebody with some letters after their, you know, names with their diagnoses and their uh, labels and, and things like that, the challenges that they have. Yeah, but this is a, a kid. This is a kiddo who has a mom and a dad who care about them and want, you know, absolute best for them. So I think parents knowing that they can talk about their child as their child and bring a photo in. Mm-hmm. Um, share the funny story of something that their kid did at home. Um, share, you know, your beliefs and your hopes and your, your, um, your just your funny realness of your child, I think needs to be brought into the meetings because Definitely. like you said, a lot of time it is about the data and then also just very much focused on the weaknesses. And, and that was even brought up in a meeting recently. And um, they asked, did we, did we address the um, strengths of the child? And, you know, in my head, I was kind of like, ah. and I even said aloud, like, mm, a little bit, you know, but we really hadn't a whole lot. And I didn't need that in that moment. And stuff, so I wasn't going to make a huge deal about it. Right. Um, but, you know, the the intervention specialist that was in charge of kind of running the meeting, he said, well, yeah, these meetings definitely are um, more focused on the weaknesses and the um, deficits. And I said, um, as a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, parents involved in these meetings, I would agree. Yes, they definitely are. So uh, I I could agree there. But so bring that realness of your child in, bring a picture of your child, help the team to realize that you are a part of that team and you are going to um, work with them. That's another piece. So bring in that realness, bring in that, that, that real experience of your child. But another thing, a lot of parents go into meetings like on a war path. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I go into meetings assertive, um, confident, definitely asserting my role as mom and as member of the team. Mm-hmm. But I also try to be very collaborative with the team and focused on let's all work together. I know that you're here to work together with me mm-hmm. um, for to meet Gavin's educational needs. And to meet his needs. You don't want to say for his best interest because you want to know the 
the language that needs to be used is not just best interest, but language is very best. tricky in this yes. population. Yes. Very tricky. So, and I'm not an expert on that, but I have learned that very much. And you do need to, um, you do need to be focused on meeting the child's academic and educational needs, yeah. not just doing the best for my child. You right. know, that that is important to know the right language. Um, but work with them. You can be assertive, you can be an advocate for your child, but you can also let them know how much you want to work with them, compliment them for on the real things that they are doing that are helpful for your child. Don't make things up or lie to them or say it if you don't believe, but be, be complimentary. Let them know that you appreciate the things that they're doing well with your child. Let them know how much you care. I mean, I'm very appreciative of the staff that works with my child and even the people that um, don't work directly with him but are involved in the evaluation process. I, I do thank them for that and, and let them know that I'm grateful for their involvement in that and their, um, you know, I mean, respecting my role in that as well. And yes, yeah. that's a gift. That's my right to have mm-hmm. that. But it, it, it doesn't have to be grateful is. for it. Most certainly is your right. And yeah. uh, I think that's, I mean, obviously I'm a parent, but if I were, were a parent with a son or daughter with autism, I'd be in their corner 100% fighting for them during those meetings. It's not, I, I think the most, the biggest thing to take from it is to not be intimidated by people with PhD after their, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. that's your kid. So. Yep. Yeah, that's 100%. That you are your expert. I'll say that again. You are your child's best expert. They may be experts in their field or their area but you are your child's best expert. You know and love your child more than any of them at that table ever will. Mm-hmm. So keep that very close to heart. Definitely. Um, so I just have a few more questions. Sure. Um, so what are some things that you do to keep yourself from burning out? So like sometimes I'll see some of your posts where you're doing like all this extreme exercising, which makes me feel bad. I'm like, I got to start exercising. Jeez. So <laughs> you're, you're, there's always like these like, day challenges you're doing all these like crazy planks on oh my god like, I couldn't, like <laughs> what is she doing <laughs> but no anyways so yeah um that's funny because the the physical fitness stuff the exercise and stuff really came in the beginning of it right around the time that my son was diagnosed and it truly became um my lifesaver. I think that even during that very early diagnosis time and friends just finding out and saying, how, what are you doing? How are you taking care of yourself? How are you handling things? I said, I'm going to turbo kick classes and turbo kick is a type of physical fitness. It was an exercise class that I went to. I eventually learned how to teach it and, um, started doing it at home and, and all of that, but starting to take care of myself physically and doing exercise went hand in hand with, our autism journey and um, for some parents I think that they think that sounds crazy they think how do you have the extra time how do you have the extra energy how do you have the money to go to classes or to do whatever where do you, what do you do with your child when you go for me it was essential because it is how I took care of myself I that one hour to focus only on me and any of the anger or the sadness or the stress or all of that could be could be handled in that one hour, you know, right. where I could just focus on me and focus on some of that. Some of the time was, you, just you know, go. physically intense workouts that would let out a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but self-care 
self-care is so key. And for you, that may not, might not mean doing a workout. For somebody else, that might mean um, joining a pottery class or going to a yoga class or, or getting um, massages some of the time, getting together with a girlfriend. Whatever that means to you, I absolutely would encourage um, parents to take care of themselves and have rituals or things that you do on a regular basis to get time away, to get time to take care of you. Um, and the other things that have helped with um, burning, not burning out, um, keeping your marriage strong. So if you are married or if you are in a, a, a relationship, whether it's the parent of the child or not, um, Keeping that relationship strong is very, very key. And I think there's a lot of struggles in marriages um, who have children with autism, not just because of the autism diagnosis. There already usually were problems there. But right. the diagnosis and living daily life with um, a child on a spectrum can bring a lot of additional stress a lot of other issues can come into play in a marriage. So if it's already struggling, it can put a huge, a huge um, mm -hmm. additional, you know, constraint on that. And I think that um, couples really need to make sure that they are having time to themselves. They um, need to really work on communicating with each other and allowing the other person's experience because they may feel very differently than you. Mm -hmm. I felt very differently about things that sometimes than my husband did. Um, we handled the diagnosis and relating with our son and everything differently over time. So we had to allow for that other person's experience, I think, um, to be their own experience and not expect it to be the same as yeah. you know, his, the same as mine or mine, the same as his. Um, and then also, I mean, I think one of the biggest things for us is that in the beginning with our Sunrise um, journey, implementing the Sunrise program, like I said, did not just affect what we did with Gavin and what we did for his autism. It really affected all of us. And it's focused on love and non-judgment and connection and acceptance and um, relationship. And that means for you, yourself, so love of yourself, acceptance of yourself, non-judgment of yourself, and your child, and other people in your life and in your family. And for me, I'm not perfect by any means with implementing any of those things. Right, right, right. But it's been so, so key and very, very important to me to come back to that and to be able to recognize when I am getting more focused on well, my son's not doing this or I want him to be achieving this or whatever and realize, okay, but first he needs to feel connected to me. Right. Those other things will come and we can work on, you know, what he's going to say in certain social situations or that he shouldn't get so frustrated that he's hitting his head on a locker at school or did something you, like did that. You run into those issues? Yeah. These are real life thing well, yeah I, I know it's just like we were talking yeah. earlier the spectrum is so wide so i know some that yeah. are very i don't want to use the word abusive but more of like self-injurious um because they're frustrated with not being able to get out what they need to get out also yeah 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 so there there are times when and it's you know you might even <clears throat> see it as extreme um extreme energy <laughs> yeah and they're usually 
or trying to communicate or not being able to communicate something um, for various different reasons. Some kids don't have the language to communicate it. Some kids have the language, like my son, but at the moment may be so overwhelmed or worked up or dealing with so many different things that he's not able to calmly communicate those things. Right. So it comes out in another way. And we continue to, to work on that. But for me to get upset and yell and, 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 and be angry and all of that in the moment, generally doesn't help with that. So that's right. why you come back to relationship first, yeah. love first, you know, acceptance first. And then, okay, we'll deal with those other things. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, taking care of myself and taking care of my mindset with this <clears throat> is absolutely key for not burning out and um there aren't you know i wouldn't say there aren't days that i don't feel you know tired or or stressed or wish that things would be different but truly i don't know that i would use the word burned out mm. for me in a very long time yeah. and that's um that's pretty amazing to be able to say when <laughs> when living like with some of the challenges that we have lived through so right. actually i'm kind of realizing that now as i say it that the, a pretty big deal <laughs> oh yeah definitely i mean like i said sometimes eight hours for me is kind of a burnout but um mm -hmm. that's because I, I usually more work more with like intensive mm -hmm. uh, students with autism so mm -hmm. but see, that's the thing i learned very quickly in this field working in this field that you have to separate your own personal issues during your work and yeah. when work's done work's done you yeah. come home and you teach yourself how to decompress and you wake up and you go back to work the next day. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I mean, the mindset piece, and we didn't talk about that, and I could go into that so much because it's been such a big piece for us. But um, when you start to learn a different way to think about things, so yes, children in situations, probably in the schools that you've worked in, are dealing with some pretty intense challenges. And working with them throughout that day is probably really intense. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> developing a different way of thinking about what they're doing at the moment or why they might be doing it or how you can be present in that moment to be helpful of them. Not like, oh, gosh, she's doing this thing again and we really don't want him to be doing it. And, oh, my gosh, because our kids pick up on all of that um, anxiousness and tenseness and, and, and intense stress they may not talk to you but they feel you you know what i'm saying like definitely i, I have i've worked with students in the past who are very emotionally intelligent um, yeah so the slightest frustration good luck trying to get back on track because they've read it and you know yeah sometimes will give you just kind of a run for your money um, <laughs> and sometimes so you know you try not to show those types of negative emotions yeah i mean and it, i I think it's it's really also dig even a little bit deep, deeper with that is is not like don't display those negative reactions, but even ask yourself, um, why am I having that reaction? Do I need to be having that same reaction? Can I think of this behavior that they're doing that the child is doing in a different way mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, OK, so this is something that they're just doing right now. For me as a parent, I had to often think. This is something he's doing right now. This doesn't mean he's going to be doing this in 
five years or 10 years, because I think that's where a lot of parents go is, oh my gosh, my child is five and they're doing this or they're eight and they're doing this. Are they going to be doing the same thing when they're 15 or 18? Um, and we have no idea. So let's just stay in the right now and, and not go to the, oh my gosh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out thing yeah. to, to just really stay in the, okay, well, this is what they're doing right now. And I'm going to be as present as I can with helping them work through this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stay as accepting as I can and help them to work through this. I know, I mean, yes, we need to maintain safety and, and things like that in school settings. And I know things can get pretty tense in that way. Um, but in home settings as well, parents are dealing with kids who are having physical reaction, meltdown type situations too, and sometimes are, are concerned about safety. And even in that situation, I do, I would encourage parents to remain as calm as they can. And one of the examples I'll give about this is our kids often are um, seeking input, sensory input, and they're looking and they're very in tune with that. They're paying attention to that. They're picking up on it, even if they may not be picking up exactly on our words or they're not communicating back to us using words, but they're picking up on that stuff. So if we, when they do something like maybe hit a locker or hit their head on a locker or throw down books or something like that, um, and yeah, they could become even more physically energetic or aggressive. Um, they could, we don't know. But if we're lighting up like a Christmas tree, so think about how you react, how a lot of parents or, or adults or teachers or staff might react to situations like that. If you're lighting up like a Christmas tree, and you're throwing, you know, your eyes and your face and your energy and your hands. And, oh my gosh, we need to stop this. Ah, if we're lighting up, that's kind of really appealing to our kids in some way. Yeah. They're like, wow, I'm getting a really big reaction about this. Yeah, I'm going to do this again. Yeah. I'm going to do this again. I'm going to do this more. You know, no, they're not saying that. No, they're not like thinking through that. But that's what's happening. They are seeing this huge reaction from us. And so they're in a way thinking, that was pretty cool. I'm going to see that kind of reaction again sometime. Wow, I've got a lot of control here if that's what's happening when I, I do this one thing. So if we can just tone it down and stay calmer and stay really in that moment and not give that big Christmas tree you know, reaction, we might see a lot less of that happening with kids. And, exactly. Uh, that was a kind of a, an example that was given in the really early times. And it just made so much sense to me. And that can be applied to lots of different situations. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily always a physical reactive child or a child who's being, you know, physically aggressive or something like that. It can be so many different things, but how we react, you know, are we lighting up like a Christmas tree or are we staying nice and calm and helping, you know, work through it in a safe way, but not giving a lot of that reaction. Right. Yeah. And are we lighting up like a Christmas tree out of, on the things that we want to see more of? You know, like, are we showing a huge reaction when our child is doing wonderful things? A lot of times we just are like, oh, great, it's quiet, or they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, so I'm just not going to say anything for now. No! Like, that's when we want to show a great big reaction and let them know, like, I love how you're doing that. I love how you're playing safely with your brother, or I love how you're, you know, calmly sitting in your seat, you know, reading right now, because that's what you're supposed to be doing, or whatever. So. We, we want to light up a lot for the things that we want to see happen and just 
kind of keep toned down for the things and, and not go into that all out ah mode. Yeah. Um, that, tends to, that tends to trigger more behavioral yeah. issues. Yeah, I, I think so. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's always easy to do that. It takes and, work. And no, but you know, the more you learn, the more you practice, it starts yeah. to second nature. Absolutely. Mindfulness about it is the, is the place to start. <clears throat> right. So uh, last question, then we'll kind of talk about the Colleen Parenting Warrior Mom. Uh, okay. What advice would you give to a family that is new to us? Okay, so a couple things. Um, I, I think the thing we just talked about too is there's so many things going on in the beginning. And so that reacting or lighting up like a Christmas tree or whatever, that's something to kind of just keep in mind because your mindset, how you portray, how you react to your child really does matter. And to keep in mind, you know, light up, react big to the things that you want to see more of. Um, for us, we call that celebrate a lot. So celebrate what you want to see in your child, even little teeny bits of it eye contact, trying to say a word, using your, using your name or a version of your name or something to talk with you or to get your attention. Celebrate those little things. Celebrate what you want to see more of. Um, as we started the journey, the biggest thing I think for me was support from other people who really got it. So connecting with other moms who, who can understand and relate and share support. Um, I'm doing a little bit of that now, and I'll mention that in a minute when we talk about um, talk about that. So I would love to support any parents who are needing that and wanting that. Um, also, remember a message of hope. And if somebody had told me when we were first diagnosed that that this is where we would be with my son right now, I mean, on one hand, I'm like, I would I would be so grateful to know that there was hope that 10 years later we would be in such a different place and he would have come so far, you know, but in a way, I think I got to the point where even though nobody did tell me that (laughs) nobody could promise me that I just trusted and remained hopeful. And I didn't, I didn't write or create a, um, and that, I, I didn't know what would be. So I didn't need to create a worst case scenario story because I didn't know. So why not create a hopeful best case scenario um, for your child and continue to work with them and love them and connect with them each day, each day as you're working to create that best case scenario. Because a lot of times I think as new autism parents, we get really stuck in the worst case scenario story mm-hmm. and all of the what ifs about our, our child and our child's future. Um, so remain in, in that, that spirit of hope and trusting that you will, you will be able to work through so many challenges with your child um, and help them come through and conquer so much. Um, advice. So the other thing would be get, get support from somewhere. And you can do that for me. I can share um, kind of ways to do that with Matthew to share with this um, podcast. Um, also get on my mailing list because I can share um, support and, and, and guidance and tips and inspiration. I do that a lot. Um, and I'm actually doing a course for um, moms and, and working with new moms or newly diagnosed families is really um, such a great place to start and do a course that I'm doing that's going to be a five-week online course to really, really look at your, it's called a new autism awareness. 
So not just the idea of autism as knowing about autism or autism as this huge challenge and obstacle in your life, but really creating a new awareness about it and understanding the impact that autism has on you, but also the huge impact that you can have on your child's autism. So that jumps into a little bit about Colleen Arrington, Warrior Mom, and, and that I, uh, that idea. But truly, um, looking at gaining support and gaining as much information that's going to be helpful to you to support you as a family and as a mom, um, because there are a lot of services out there, and you can look and figure out what's going to help your child. But if you don't help yourself, and if you don't create um the belief and the understanding that you have a huge impact on your child, yourself, um, there's a lot more struggle, I think, in that journey, unless you find a way to, to take care of you and to do your best to then help your child. Um, and if you don't take care of yourself first, it makes it a lot harder to take care of your child. Right. Thank you so much. So the last thing I want to talk about is... Uh... <laughs> Colleen Arrington, Warrior Mom. Warrior Mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Colleen Arrington, Warrior Mom is my page on Facebook, so mm -hmm. people can find me there, Colleen Arrington, Warrior Mom. And the, the words come from, um, a lot of times people will identify as autism warriors. And for me, it's not a warrior that I'm fighting constantly um, against something. I'm really fighting for my child. Mm -hmm. I'm fighting for me as a mom and as a person, um, and I'm truly fighting for other people and, and offering that support and guidance and inspiration to other moms so that they are not going through this journey alone. And um, because I've been a past social worker and therapist and then took a break from that to be at home with my child, got into um, coaching and helping other people in health and fitness and taking care of themselves in that way, I've really felt called to return a bit more to my help of other people, not as a counselor, but as an autism um, coach, as a consultant for moms working through this journey. And so the uh, autism warrior support services is really where my focus is right now mm -hmm. and um i i have on my website is colleenarrington.com people can find out more information there um i'm also like i said starting a course where i'm really going to help moms work through the process of understanding the impact of autism on them but also how they can be a huge advocate for themselves take care of themselves physically mentally and um, in their inner self, it's really about looking at their mindset and how they think and are dealing with things so that they can be the best for their child and help their, and help their child in so many amazing ways. Um, so that course, my first round of that course is starting May 7th. So I'm... Um, yeah, this will be up sometime tonight. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's opening in, um, for enrollment now. And then that'll be starting May 7th. And it really is um, a five-week course that has several different topics that are touched on. And, and it's really to address some of those key areas that impact your life and that also autism impacts within your life. So mm -hmm. it's going to talk about marriage and family relationships and addressing that with other people and sibling relationships. Um, we're going to talk about our self-limiting beliefs and what holds us 
back from believing in our child, believing in ourselves for what we can do for our child. We're going to talk about um, health and wellness within our families and how to help our kids to be healthy, how to help ourselves to be healthy. Um, so that's going to be a piece in there. We're also going to talk about um, forgetting now what our oh my biggest one of my biggest things one of the the deepest things is how to create that deeper connection with your child no matter what type of therapy services you're using mm -hmm. how to create that personal relationship and connection with your child um, because you are with your child the most you care and love your child the most so it really is about helping moms to um, and dads I'm not against dads I just <laughs> no, no, don't no. Um, to really harness how they can have that huge impact on their relationship and on their child's future. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to talk about it because I actually got an invite from you and I saw the page. I thought it was just amazing and I really wanted to hear you talk more about it in depth. And so when this gets posted, you know, I have a few friends right now who have children with autism and I'm really hoping they will listen to this uh, podcast or this episode. Uh, that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. And please, um, like I said, ColleenArrington.com. Um, I'm sure you'll, you can put that in the um, podcast notes. Um, but that's a way that people can reach me. Also, Colleen at ColleenArrington.com is how they can email me if they have questions. Um, I would love to share further information um, and how they can sign up for the course as well. So um, if you do have people ever that have questions, please let them know they can get in touch with me anytime. Definitely. All right, Colleen Arrington, thank you so much for your time. This was a pleasure. You are welcome. It was my pleasure as well. Talk to you Have later. Have a nice night. Bye-bye.